and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, number 165, and more than halfway through January. Before you know it, the temperatures will be rising, and there'll be spring flowers, depending on where you are, of course. I already have a few flowers out in the garden, probably confused by a short, mild spell that we will pay for at some point. Ever the optimist. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and most of my week has been spent trying to shake this cold, and failing miserably. I did get one nice walk-in along an old Roman wall. In fact, the furthest north the Romans managed to get. All I could think about was the poor soldiers who could have been stationed anywhere across the beautiful and warm Mediterranean, and who ended up in freezing and wet Scotland. It does have its benefits, though, although, having said that, a climate like southern Spain or Italy isn't one of them. But it was an interesting walk and quite varied, and it's not rained for a while either. And as I say that, it's raining. Covid rules are being relaxed here now, so hopefully that means travel will be a lot easier soon. And by that, I mean expensive test kits and worrying if you'll get the results in time. I'm hoping to go to the ice cream show in a few weeks' time, which doesn't need any of those things because it's in the same country. But then there's still all the coordination that goes with it, such as school, pets and those kind of things. And the dilemma over whether to drive or take the train, which involves five changes from here. Or more likely, if I get the wrong platform. And that has happened to me before. I remember during my university days going to a football game and getting on a train after the game back from Sheffield to Leeds. Now, you're thinking I was going in the wrong direction, but no, it was the right direction. Only at the stop before Leeds, the train split into two. The back four carriages went to Leeds. The front four, which I was in, also went to Leeds. Well, kind of. It just didn't stop there. It was a non-stop to Newcastle. So, I ended up in Newcastle and had to get another train back. I think it was about 11 at night before I got home. And these were the days before being able to watch on a phone or listen to radio on a phone. Fortunately, they didn't charge me any extra, and I think I bought a magazine at the station to read on the way home. The good old days before everyone was glued to a six-inch screen, ignoring each other and not looking out of the window at the scenery. So the end result is I'll probably drive to the ice cream show and hope Google Maps gets me there. Speaking of the ice cream and artisan food show, to give it its full name, it's a part of this week's podcast as we have an interview with the organisers of the event as well as a couple of exhibitors. And last week I mentioned we'd have a feature on cyber security, and we do. It's a long one, but definitely well worth listening to. So, the conversations this week are with Zelika Carr, CEO of the Ice Cream Alliance, about the Ice Cream and Artisan Food Show, as well as two of the attendees, Mark Antonelli, Director of Sales and Technical Support at Antonelli Brothers, and Phil Darvell, Managing Director of Machinery World. And the feature on cybersecurity is an interview with Jonathan Reed, Global Head of Automation, Electrical and Digital Engineering at SPX Flow. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. So now we will take a quick look at some of the news you may have missed over the past week. Irish dairy exports to the UK grew in 2021 despite Covid and Brexit. Tetra Pak and Elvir created a carton cap using certified recycled polymers. And we had an interesting article on using leftover juniper berries from gin distillation to make cheese. 
In the UK, the GCA is looking for input from the dairy sector. Dairy groups in the US have created a new CEO role for the organisations. And the Farmers Union of Wales says rising energy prices are not sustainable for the dairy industry. We're still going with the 2022 trends, and we had an article on Kerry highlighting its top flavours for innovation with its 2022 global taste charts. And we'll have an interview about that next week. Synergy Flavors has expanded its US R&D labs. There's a new milk labeling system in Germany to show the level of animal welfare involved. And Ecosem Agrar growth continues in Russia. DSM divided its animal nutrition and health business into three lines. SIG launched its signature Evo packaging. And the GDT celebrated its 300th event, as we may hear about from Charlie later. You can read all of these and many more at DairyReporter.com. And that brings us to a subject close to the hearts of many, and that's ice cream. The annual event in Italy, SIGEP, has been pushed back, so the next ice cream event is taking place in the UK in less than three weeks' time, and it's the Ice Cream and Artisan Food Show in Harrogate in Yorkshire. It's one of my favourite events. It's not huge, but it's well organised and everyone's very helpful and friendly. And there's also a lot to see. And I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of weird flavours there are this time around. I seem to remember there was a curry one last time. So I'm looking forward to samples again. Anyway, to tell us more about the show is Zelika Carr, the CEO of the organisers, the Ice Cream Alliance. And I first asked about planning for the event, as it's not happened for two years. Normally in the planning of doing any event, it takes us a year. But when the government announced that there were going to be no exhibitions until sort of considering uh, sort of spring of 2021, we then had to then get back to all our booked exhibitors and ask them what they wanted to do. And there were two questions that we asked. One, if we could have something in 2021, probably later, say May, would they exhibit? Or did they want to hold off until February 2022? So when we surveyed our exhibitors, a lot of them said no. They wanted to move to the spring of 2022, mainly because for them, May would be too late. The season would have started, people would have made their purchasing decisions and they didn't feel that it was going to be a benefit. And also, as it turned out, none of us could have got together in May anyway either. So those booked exhibitors then moved over to 2022. And then, of course, it's been more challenging in certain ways with this new variant that came into play, obviously, in this autumn, because normally by then we would be taking in the smaller stands, uh, the ones that don't have to have a lot of preparation that would book later. But nobody wanted to book, as you can imagine, once we got into the high levels of the rising infection in sort of December. And then, of course, then there was the uncertainty of were we after Christmas Day going to be in a you know lockdown again? Because in England they were talking about a possible circuit breaker for two weeks, so that sort of put the mockers on the early part of January. And here we are. The more positive news, obviously, of this week is that obviously Scotland and Wales are now uh, looking to release some of their restrictions, and probably England further later this month. So now those smaller exhibitors start to get in touch, but um, whether three weeks out, it's too late for them, who knows, really. It's still very uncertain times, isn't it? We just saw that SIGEP was pushed back a little bit and you're getting into the... Into the season. Easter, yeah. people start thinking about opening up, especially in some of the 
cooler climbs so i would imagine that that's not an ideal thing to push things back into when the season starts no because as you can imagine with this last couple of years trading being so tough and quite restrictive because most of our parlours are still having to do takeaways, as you can imagine, this last summer. They've not been able to use their places to, you know, the full capacity. So the, any opportunity if the weather was fine, and as you know, in Northern Ireland, last week it was 11 degrees. It was nice. So people were eating ice cream in January. So, yeah, if there's any possibility the sun shining and it not raining, then they're going to open up earlier just because they can. You did the um, the promotion last year for the staycations. How did that go? Yeah, that went really well. But as you can imagine, in some locations, they were always going to be busy. Cornwall, coastal resorts, and this, that, and the other. The one thing it did was it just helped the general public realise how tough it had been for our members in the industry. Because it was talked a lot about hospitality in general, but not so much about the ice cream industry. Obviously, with various things to do with Brexit, we wanted to make sure that the general public knew that, you know, they were having challenges outside the pandemic. And if they could support their local partners or when they were traveling within the UK, maybe on holidays or days out, if they could, you know, think about getting an ice cream, then that would be fantastic. And in that respect, it went down very well. And we managed to get a retail sponsor to support our event, which was Halfords, and on the safety side, so offering our mobile vans, if they wanted to have like a five-point check, they could have that for free. And they also then helped just tell everybody in their 750 stores about the Ice Cream Alliance and the ice cream industry, which was amazing. So it went really well. I'm getting back to the 2022 event in Harrogate. What kind of measures are you taking for things like social distancing and masks and does everybody get a free ice cream scoop and a free squirt of uh, sanitizer or how's it all working? Yeah there's plenty of sanitizing stations throughout. We will be asking and requiring everybody over the age 18 to have an NHS COVID pass or a approved proof of vaccination because obviously it might vary with the devolved nations. We're also asking people who can't obviously prove that they've been vaccinated to make sure that they've at least 48 hours before that they've got a negative PCR test or a negative natural flow, which again, they have to then prove to the various devolved nations that they've actually taken that test and it, you know, has come back negative. So we will be having additional security on the door, checking everybody entering into the building. The lucky thing about the hall at the Yorkshire Event Centre is it is a beautiful, very open planned only built about five years ago. So it's got fantastic state-of-the-art ventilation. We've got um, doors that we can open and all our stands are minimum of two and a half to three metres apart. So plenty of stand space for people to walk around freely. What we've asked our exhibitors, if they are doing samples of either coffee or ice cream, we've asked them to put it into smaller tubs so we don't have a lot of people walking around without their masks on when they're walking from one stand to another. So we're asking people near enough to you know, eat it on the stand that they've been given it and then obviously put their mask back on and then to walk around freely around the exhibition. So we will cover any government guidelines that are imposed by us. And we've even done, as the ICA, we've done our own COVID sort of policy, which we actually have had approved by Harrogate Borough Council as of last Friday. We want to ensure that everybody has a great time, but obviously feels quite confident and safe. So, yes, there'll be plenty of hand sanitizers, additional, obviously, people making sure the general areas are kept hygienic, you know, um, cleaners and things like that. So, yes, we've got everything in place. And the good thing about the Yorkshire Event Centre, they've already done 13 other events 
during the pandemic. So they're well versed about how to look after us as an organisation, but also our visitors and exhibitors. Was there ever any doubt as to whether this would go ahead? Because I know before Christmas, it was looking pretty hairy for most events. Absolutely. I would say it was still doubtful to possibly even two weeks ago. It's only got better since obviously the levels of infections have come down and obviously devolved nations have recognised that. Having said that, you know, the other thing that we've all been watching for is how our NHS have been able to hold up. And as you know, they are struggling. But the only positive thing is with this particular variant, so many people aren't being hospitalised like they were before with Delta. And obviously, um, deaths have not been so high. But anybody catching it, especially recently with a variant, it seems to have, if they've been vaccinated, very mild symptoms, which is, is, you know, fantastic compared to this time last year. So for the 2022 event, what kind of things can we expect? Are there any changes? Are there more booths than last time? Uh, There are bigger booths than last time because a couple of our exhibitors have up their stands. So Antonelli included and the Nick Group. We've got some new exhibitors coming with the new uh, products and services, which will be really interesting. We're bringing back the demonstration area with Seth Moon and Andrew Thwaite, so showcasing ice cream and chocolate, which will be amazing. And also, we are going to launch our new ice cream salsa accreditation, which has never been done before. We're in partnership with Salsa. It's going to be talked about at our seminars on the Tuesday and Wednesday, and you will need to be an ICA member moving forward to get this accreditation, and it's going to be launched in June this year. So really exciting. We were very keen to have an accreditation that was unique to our industry. The great thing about Salsa recently is they've branched out and have already done it for the brewing and the cheese industry. And now we asked if we could do it also specifically for the ice cream, because the one thing about that we find that our members find, especially with possibly environmental health and trading standards, is there's not a lot of information that's just unique. It is to, you know, there's a lot of information for the food and drinks industry, but not generally just for ice cream. So this sort of accreditation will help on that front in respect to bringing a lot of knowledge in, but also bringing in the quality of the product up to um, an incredible standard. So we're really excited about that. This is probably one of the first food events in the UK for quite some time. I guess there must be quite excitement about it. Yeah, very much so. Well, the first ice cream event for nearly two years, because as you quite rightly said, with CJEP deferring their show now till March and the Germany show postponing their show, we will be the first ice cream event for nearly two years in Europe. So yeah, we're very excited about that. And so what do you think the highlights are going to be of the event? The highlights, I think people getting back together, really. First time in two years, we've had a lot of our members who have had to either, you know, because their businesses really stay local. And they're really excited about coming back together in Harrogate, you know, seeing what's new in the industry, seeing what machinery is out there for them to either, you know, upgrade their actual business. And the fact of just socialising, being able to get back together safely, which will be great because we've done a lot of our own members have uh, kept in touch with each other on Zoom. But as you will appreciate, and I'm sure you're the same as myself, is Zoom has been a fantastic tool, especially, you know, during lockdown. But there's nothing better than meeting someone face to face, is there?
No, absolutely. And samples, that's the other thing that I've missed. Yeah, samples will be available. But like I said, we are asking our exhibitors to make sure that they are smaller quantities so that we don't have people you know, wandering around without masks, eating and drinking. The exciting thing is that we're bringing back the National Ice Cream Competition to be judged back at the show. Because in 2021, we had to do it here in head office at Derby with uh, minimal judges judging maximum classes. But we're now excited to bring it back to Harrogate on Tuesday and Wednesday, the 8th and 9th. Is it open to people from overseas or is it just UK? Absolutely. If if they are allowed to travel and come into the UK, they are very welcome. So we have registered a few people from abroad and we do have some exhibitors coming from abroad, from either Italy, Poland, Romania. So for those that may be wondering about the event and about attending, what are the details in terms of, you know, times, when it's open, cost, yeah. etc.? Yeah. If you want to register for free entry, like I said, that is available to anybody until the 21st of January. After that, there will be a £10 plus booking fee from the 22nd. The reason being that obviously we need to make sure that we pre-register as many people as possible because obviously that makes it a lot safer if we don't have a lot of people registering on the day. Doors will open at 10 o'clock on Tuesday 8th and it will be opened by the Mayor of Harrogate, which we're absolutely delighted about. And then on Wednesday the 9th of February, Gennaro Concaldo will be back again by popular demand, our celebrity chef with us all day and also at our ICA award night, which is at the Crown Plaza Hotel on Wednesday the 9th of February, which we do still have some tickets available. Just please get people to get in touch with us at head office if they're interested in coming along, which is a great way of celebrating what's great about our industry. So we'll be announcing our class winners for the National Ice Cream Competition and our industry awards, which is the Rising Star Award, Greed and Morelli, and also uh, the Marvin Benton, which is somebody who's contributed to the Ice Cream Alliance and the Ice Cream Industry, which is the Marvin Benton Award. And it's a three-day event? It's a three-day show, yes. So 10 till 5 on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then on Thursday it's 10 till 3 o'clock. The last people through the door will be able to come through at 2.30. Next, we'll talk to a couple of the exhibitors attending the event. And first, it's to the equipment supplier Machinery World and the company's managing director, Phil Darvell. And so I first asked Phil for a little background on the company. Machinery World is a company owned by Paul Crowther. He started it in January 1999 as a second-hand dairy equipment supplier. So literally buying a machine, selling it, making a margin and reinvesting in more equipment. The business has grown over the years and whilst it still works in all dairy products, um, there is quite a strong specialisation in ice cream. I'd say probably about 50% of our business is ice cream. The company currently employs 14 people. In terms of export, around about 65% of all Machinery World sales are exports. So we're a net exporter. How has Brexit and the pandemic affected that? So we've seen some markets that have struggled. Other markets um, were very strong, especially overseas markets during the pandemic. So there was an initial tightening of budget almost globally but then some markets were quite strong. The UK suffered to a degree, but again, some of our customers have done particularly well, whereas others have found it very, very tough. And we're obviously here to try and help them out either by buying machinery from them, use machinery that they might not have a use for anymore, which they can then put money back into the coffers, or of course, 
if they've developed a new product or a new market for themselves, they might need new equipment to go with that. What are you seeing in the ice cream industry overall with the last, I don't know, 12, 18 months with the pandemic? Because it seemed to have been a bit of an upturn in some respects because people seem to be turning to ice cream during the pandemic. Yeah, well, it's always reassuring, I think, to be able to have ice cream. Typical trends that we have seen, which may be across the whole industry, would be that a lot of our customers have managed to find a route to a retail market that they've not had before. So particularly products like 500 mil tubs have become really popular and it seems to go through periods where it's fairly quiet and then it builds up again. So it's a really important product line now to take home small family pot. And uh, as I said, a number of our clients have found a route to market with that packaging that they didn't have before. So that's been really positive for many. It must be a bit of a challenge, though, with all of the different customers that you mentioned. Some some are doing well and some have, have struggled to find markets. I guess a lot of that would depend on how much of a reliance they had on food service and restaurants at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, very much. A number of our customers are 100% focused on food service. So it has certainly been challenging for them. But similarly, customers who are supplying airlines, they've, of course, seen a significant downturn. And many of them are only just starting to get back into supplying the airlines. And the same goes for theatres, of course, um, with the individual servings. But having said that, it's very positive that the planes are flying now and theatres are starting to open. And and I guess we've got the ice cream show coming up. How how long have you been involved with that? Do you go to that regularly? Certainly um, every year, apart from last year, where we couldn't hold the exhibition, Machinery World have exhibited at the exhibition. And uh, our industrial machinery brand, Rock, we've also shared the stand for probably the last 10 years with Machinery World. So we've always put on a good show and it's been very positive for us. Is this one of the most important events? It's certainly the largest ice cream event in the UK. There are some worldwide exhibitions which we've taken part in to a degree and we've visited at different times, but this is our home event. So, yeah, it's the one that we put the most effort into. In terms of the logistics with the pandemic, is it going to be any different this year, the event or the way that you're approaching the event? Not in any way. We have a a range of brand new machinery, both industrial and artisan, and also we sell secondhand equipment. So the show's always been about us being able to showcase our products, our new products, but also it's a, a shop window for us to offer our secondhand machinery. So we're looking at aspirational buyers who are looking for upgrading, but um, we can often sell secondhand machinery to newcomers to the industry as well, or try and provide products at various prices to meet the expectations and to meet people's budgets. Everybody's situation is so different. I guess you've had to be a bit more flexible and a bit more uh, understanding of all of those challenges as well. Yeah, completely. Again, from experience, um, I've been involved with Machinery World for just over 13 years. And in that time, we've had small customers who have turned into big customers and we've managed to help them at every step of the journey. So they might start with something small and secondhand, but if they've got the determination and the product to take forward, 
we find that many of those now are amongst our larger customers and are very successful selling their products nationally. Now it's over to Antonelli's, another company with long ties to not only the UK ice cream community, but also to the ice cream show. And we spoke with Director of Sales and Technical Support, Mark Antonelli. All right, so to get things started, if I could get a little bit of background information on the company, that'd be great. Well, it was my great-grandfather, mine and my brother's great-grandfather, Domenico Antonelli, and his family who started baking wafers and biscuits in 1912. At that time, the baker was behind the old Trafford Cricket Ground scoreboard. And in the early eight, early 60s, my father, Roland, and Ernest and Victor, his brothers, they, with the support of their father, Romolo, they took the wafer and cone plants and recited them in the bakery at, at Weymouth Road in Eccles. So over the next 40 years or so, they put in more automatic ovens that were purchased from around the world, America, Italy, Austria, Germany, to the point where we've now outgrown the bakery at Weymouth Road. During the 90s, Ernest and Victor retired, and after several years of managing the business on his own, Roland's sons, myself, Mark and David, came into the business. With this came the impetus to drive more investment in ovens, making more cones, diversity, at a time when the UK market was undergoing quite a surge in the prolification of farm ice cream, gelaterias, and more recently, dessert parlours. So sort of going through the time there, it was back in 1994 when the family planned its future direction for the whole business, which was based on the fact that cone ovens only made cones. Our bakery staff were very experienced in in running those machines. Also, that cones are light, fragile, low in costs, so transport is always a major consideration. The English Channel even you know, back then, it's always has been a very expensive waterway. And fuel costs were only going to go one way in terms of being a higher cost overall as a percentage. Then again, there was the UK market. It's large enough to warrant uh, at least one of its own specialist cone bakeries. But in the future, of course, that would have to be much larger and more efficient to compete on a global scale. So the decision was simply, let's make more cones. So since then... We also looked at other ways of keeping costs down, and that was getting involved in the ingredients side as well of the ice cream supply. For most companies, innovation and quality is all a lot of talk, but at Antonelli's, we have a strap line, cones for the connoisseur for a generation. And our philosophy is simply only a cone that is good enough to eat on its own is good enough to serve your ice cream on. And that's always been the for ourselves in everything that we do. But to be a successful manufacturer in the future of our industry, there needed to be more innovation. And since the 60s, you know, we were the first cone maker for rolled cones with automatic ovens in the UK. We put in exclusive smoothie waffle cones printing, which I think is exclusive in the world. Uh, although we do kind of keep those for the more discerning ice cream brands and gelato brands. We were the first company in the UK to run machines to produce dipped and decorated cones, and we're the only one now. 
we also were the first and only maker of the disc wafers, which have become very popular with dessert parlours to have their name printed on them. The system we have, we designed ourselves, so it's not so important to run big lines. So the ingredient side, we listened. Probably people talked to us because we weren't in the ingredient side. So they talked to us about the good, the bad and the ugly when working with flavours and other ingredients. That was a great help as a foundation to understand what people were looking for. So the decision was made to go into the ingredients, given us several advantages. One, where, um, where our larger manufacturers and wholesaler companies can take big orders. It helps keep costs down. And the addition of ingredients helps the artisan retailers as well to keep orders cost effective. Environmental impacts are inevitably a greater concern year on year. So making sure that your delivery is efficient is always going to be key. It was always going to be key. So increases in the product range of the business has made it very much more cost effective for us to have the team of business relationship managers and the technical staff to look after the customer's needs. So it's been a very exciting time. So growth by just selling more lines or selling further afield is a thing that lots of people do. But the objective of Antonelli's has been to grow whilst remaining a specialist supplier. And yes, we have pans and tubs of serving for packaging and spoons and all compostable and biodegradable things, all these other things. But many customers don't even know the extent of that because we don't tend to say, make a big thing out of it. It's more of a service to the customers. So we tend to start by saying, if you're looking for something, let us know. And if we don't have it, we'll know where to go for it. That um, brings us up to kind of the recent times of a 10-year plan. We kind of exceeded our warehouse capacity at Weymouth Road. So we took on temporary warehousing and eventually we've added the Earlham site. We've been there for eight years. That's given us another 1,500 pallet spaces, which would have been enough, we thought, for the plan growth. But then, of course, came along Brexit. And so demand has increased earlier in our schedule than we expected back then. So we've got plenty more opportunities and the, the growth is there on the new Earlham site. And in fact, we have a meeting next week where we're hoping to get the ball rolling after the delays of the pandemic, which put the building of the new bakery on the back burner. But buildings and machines are one thing, but people are really the most important thing. And we don't just, we've never wanted just numbers. It's important to have the very best people. So where there's a, a gap, we tend to work harder at filling those gaps until we find the right person and the job's big enough to warrant the investment. So that's kind of the up-to-date history. But one of the things you were asking, Jim, before was how we, the past year and a half has been for the pandemic. Well, um, I've tried to keep this concise because the facts that everybody has had and seen the, the impact of it. But since the start of the pandemic in 2020, thankfully, from a stress point of view, we've not actually started to build the new bakery. So we were able to put that on hold, which was um, a very positive thing in, from a financial point of view. But to be honest, where we are now, I wish we had it built right now. On a more positive note, uh, we were very pleased to welcome Joseph Bonney as a commercial director and Michael Home, who will look after business across Ireland, both well-respected and knowledgeable individuals, and so a great compliment to our team. 
although the short term is very important as a business, the long term is, is equally, if not more so. And the things about the business that have been stressful in the short term, I've been less concerned about. We're no different than everybody else. The main thing is, is what you're doing a good decision for the future. And so we've been really pleased to bring more people in who are going to add a lot to the future. So although the commercial problems the last 18 months are pretty clear, you know, cash flow, material availability, cost increases, staff availability in all areas of the economy, the pandemic has, has put a huge strain on everybody at a personal level. Add to this the stress of <laughs> our own individual things. We've got a new ERP system in across the business, the supply chain interruptions, production forecast upheavals, logistic disruptions. You can go on and on. A lot of pressure, not just on commercial relationships with customers, but also individually, because we're trying to you know, do the very best we can. So probably the most difficult times that we never thought we'd see again, and certainly since World War II. My brother, David, and I are very proud of all our staff. Every part of the business, they've been putting huge amounts of effort in and have been to support our customers' businesses. So we're very pleased about that. Brexit. can't actually believe that I didn't include Brexit in the list of stress. But kind of that's an individual element all on its own. Our sales team, uh, we have a sales meeting in October usually. And in October 20, we briefed on the forecast outcome for manufacturers in the UK serving the UK market. We said they will do well. UK manufacturers supplying the EEU would find it potentially very difficult without unique values in their businesses. And changes to the new trade rules will inevitably take a number of years to become more stable. We've seen that even after one year, things getting better, even though the politicians are still at loggerheads. So it's nothing that we weren't expecting. Uh, something like 90% of all the ice cream ingredients other than milk products and some sugar come from outside the UK. So when costs and availability change, they pretty well change for everybody. And it's just that 2021-22 has sort of taken that to an extreme. And ultimately, in competitive terms, if everybody has to put their prices up or everybody drops their price, it really makes not a lot of difference except stress because of it's a matter of timing. For cones, however, in the UK, we only import 60% of, of the demand and imported products for the UK. They have increased in costs of transport, import-export documentation, customs charges. And these are things that can't be avoided. They may be being deferred, but uh, the longer you, and you can hang on for a while, providing you've got healthy margins from buying and selling. With ourselves, Antonelli's, we're the only company who make in the UK ranges of sugar cones, waffle cones, as well as the pressed cones. And we saw a great increase in demand last year in what was commercially a very difficult year. But I'm very pleased, as I say, from our staffing point of view, that all hands to the pump, we worked day and night and managed to look after the customers in a, in a way that I was very proud of. During the pandemic, ice cream seemed to be one of the things that did quite well. Is that still the case? Yes, very much so. It's only really when things quieten down that we get a chance to talk to our customers. 
about their businesses. But during the year, for sure, we saw the volume that represented that. And the staycation clearly was a big uh, positive thing for sales. The only thing I would say, though, Jim, is although, although it was a very positive thing and the government supported cash flow with furlough, there was a big impact on positive cash flow. However, the unavailability of staff and products not available as they normally would be put a greater deal of stress on everybody in their businesses. So I think we had better cash flow, but personally, I think people found it a lot more stressful. And I guess we're only well less than a month away now from the big ice cream show in Harrogate. How important is that to your company? Well, over the whole of the pandemic, we were working on new flavors and projects and new products because whatever happens in the short term, people will still want more choice and more innovation. And not having Harrogate last year was a big, a big negative for us because it's a great opportunity to showcase the things that we have for customers. And with traveling also being a big issue through not necessarily restrictions, but what people were comfortable with in many areas allowing people to see new products was an issue. That said, because of all the reasons I was saying before about a lot of the business owners were multitasking and the consumers were coming out to have an ice cream. They weren't necessarily looking for something new and exciting and innovative. They were just happy to get out and have an ice cream. So the need for changes last year in, in development was quite small. But the array of products we have now to cover all sectors of the market, the national manufacturers and artisans alike, who engaged with specialists across the whole world last year. We were bringing products and having what could only be termed the Great British Gelato Off of 2020 with competing suppliers. And we just now got to the point, then we got to the point where we could select the best of the best. And we've not had the chance to show that off yet. But obviously... Harrogate 22 is going to be the platform to do this to the wider audience. The staff shortages that the people have had hopefully won't be there in February. And we've spoken to a lot of customers last autumn. I was very pleased to hear that people are very, very keen to get to Harrogate this year. But a lot of people are just keen to get out because they've not been out. And so... We're really excited about Harrogate, although equally, I do understand it if people feel it's not the right thing to go out to a a place where there are lots of people, then we respect that as well. But our feedback is massive majority, huge majority of people who are ready to rock and roll and and get on with uh, getting to Harrogate. We've been going to the ice cream show since its inception and Before that, it was a conference and we were there as a family business ever since. And I would say, Jim, that perhaps it's not considered a very important thing, but is very memorable to me is that the people you deal with there year on year, very much the same people. And and they're really nice people. And they run from the management to, to the security. Always the same smiling faces year on year. What we look at it as an opportunity to make new friends in business. And these relationships last decades, if not generations. The other thing is keeping in touch with the existing customers who we'd be visiting anyway, if not at Harrogate. And it's, it's actually quite an efficient way to present new products to many customers all at the same time. 
And how will you be responding to the COVID pandemic at the event? Nearer the time. We haven't done it yet, but we will be asking and recommending customers make appointments. We've got 12 people on the stand over three days. If people make an appointment, it will enable us to much better manage what is a very invaluable time from our, our customers' point of view. I think the one thing that hurts me the most is weeks after the event, somebody says to me, oh, well, I tried to get to see you and you were just so busy all the time. If yeah. we can have appointments, then we can spread the number of people who are on the stand at one time, which will be good, not just from a COVID point of view, but I think people will feel more comfortable. There is still time to register to attend the event if you're interested in going. Just head over to www.ice-cream.org. The link is also on the page accompanying the podcast, or you could just Google Ice Cream Show Harrogate, and it should show up. Now, I'm sure we've all had all kinds of spam emails in our mailbox from time to time, some of which are quite funny and very obvious, but those phishing emails are nothing when it comes to some of the major computer issues some companies have, and some governments even. Cybercrime is a huge problem, and the consequences are, of course, potentially devastating. And if you think it's big companies and governments that are susceptible, think again, because it can happen to anyone. A company that not only deals with equipment, but also solutions for running the equipment, including how to stay one step ahead through cybersecurity, is SPX Flow. And to tell us about the issues and some of the solutions is the company's global head of automation, electrical and digital engineering, Jonathan Reed. I first asked for a bit of background on the company. Yeah, I mean, SPX are one of the global leaders in liquid food processing technologies. We are a leader in the technology as well as the supply of equipment. So some of the technology we're making to do with dairy alternatives is absolute cutting edge market leading tech. We've a company of nearly 5,000 staff. We manufacture the equipment ourselves in-house. We also provide the part of the business I work for. We provide turnkey automation and control systems for all of these engineering products that we make. So the team that I, I'm lucky enough to run is a team of about 150, 160 automation and electrical engineers. And we provide some of the best factory automation systems in the food and beverage environment around the world. I'm very proud of what we do. We've also got some really good stuff going on in the automation and IT and computing and cybersecurity world as well. So I will allude to some of that. You mentioned all the automation. I think we've got to a point now where computers are running massive amounts of equipment across the world, I guess. And we tend to look at cybersecurity and cybercrime and think, oh, it just applies to governments. It just applies to the huge companies. I assume that it can apply to anybody, including small companies. The backbone of cybercrime really is someone monetizing a weapon. I think although we hear in the press, we see in the news when the big companies are hit, obviously because they're big companies or they're doing something incredibly important like the huge oil pipeline across the USA, when they are hit, it, it makes massive headline news. The actual reality of monetizing that type of thing is that the smaller 
it's actually are probably less risk and more monetizable in a short term manner. The reason I say this, uh, we know of the large cyber attack of the pipeline across the US uh, earlier in 2021. The actual US government has put a, um, I think it's a $10 million bounty on finding the cyber criminals. And the people, if they're convicted in the US for that offence, will probably spend the rest of their life in a horrible prison. So these top line companies that are being hit bring with them all sorts of terrible trouble and repercussions if they get caught. Smaller companies are actually much easier targets. They don't have the infrastructure to protect themselves. They probably don't have the in-house staff that are doing the analysis to detect when the cyber attack is happening. And actually, it's easier to get 10 small hits than it is one big hit. The small companies can often do less about it. They're much more focused on having to pay a statistic I read back in 2021 that they think somewhere between 50 and 80 percent of small to medium enterprises that are hit by a cyber attack actually don't report it. They don't want the negative news and the reputational damage to come from it. So they pay up. If they haven't reported it, maybe they haven't told the police. And therefore, I think actually that smaller companies are equal or more likely to be hit by a cyber attack than large companies. It's just the media generally sensationalises the large attacks. As far as those attacks are concerned, what kind of attacks are they and and what form do they take? How do people recognise these things? This is when we get into the nuances of what is a cyber attack and why do people do a cyber attack? If at the end of the day, these people are trying to get money from these cyber attacks, they, they generally attack in one of a couple of methods. The first method is to stop the plant, stopping manufacturing. I'm going to talk about the manufacturing space because that is my space, but they will stop the plant from manufacturing. And that means that the existing product in the plant stops, the plant has halted, Generally, the control layer will keep the active systems running that were running. So if there was a production run in place, generally they will keep them running. Maybe they will complete the production run or maybe something will happen and they will just put the plant into a hold and a recirculate. But they've effectively stopped manufacturing. And that means that there is an immediate requirement from the cyber attack for the, the company that's been hit to do something. And normally that's pay a ransom. Alternatively, cyber attacks can take a much more subtle um, approach. I have to be a little bit careful about what I say because I don't want to educate a whole new breed of cyber attackers really on the weak spots and the sweet spots of where to do a cyber attack. But there are certain key components within a facility that would mean that if those little key components were, were attacked with malware and ransomware or were locked up, that actually, although the rest of the plant might effectively still appear to work, there is all sorts of problems in maintaining their supply chain or maintaining their historical data chain that those companies need. So the attacks take lots of different forms. Of course, approaching an attack can come from we've all heard haven't we don't pick up a spare usb stick that you found in the factory or found in the car park and plug it in don't click on a link that we're, we're sent via a random email a lot of cyber issues are much more subtle than that a piece of malware might sit on a, a an engineer's programming tool in the person's house it might sit there for six or eight months and actually do nothing and then when that programming tool is taken to a site that doesn't have protection 
and is plugged in, all of a sudden that malware will propagate. So I know of some situations back in 2021 where cyber attacks were issued to customers actually by a very innocent third party doing the same thing that they'd done 10 times before in the previous 10 weeks and there'd be no repercussions. And for me, that's the big scary thing. We're working in a technical landscape where we cannot actually predict quite what's going to happen next. These attacks are really clever. And I know that we're often told by IT departments and by advertising, don't open dubious emails or don't click on links. And some of them are extremely obvious. Some of them aren't quite so obvious. Is it a case of just being vigilant to that? Or is it if you're dealing with that, is that more a case of shutting the stable door after the horse is bolted? I mean, how do you approach these things and and not be vulnerable? It's a great question because the answer is endless. At the end of the day, the first way to protect yourself against a cyber attack is to try and prevent the majority of attacks. So everybody within a business probably has access to email. Everybody in the business may, as I mentioned before, walk around the car park and find a USB stick and be interested to see what's on it. So protecting everybody in the business from a cyber attack is the big scattergun approach. When it comes to a dedicated industrial control system, generally manufacturers, the owners of these control systems, have already put some measures in place. So most control systems, most facilities like that, they don't actually attach the control system to the internet. The users of the control system don't have their email account on the same terminal they would use to program or fault find the software. So the traditional information we're given by the IT team is a very sensible approach. It gives you a great amount of awareness of thinking about where these attacks may come from. But as I said, it's much more subtle within an industrial control system as to where the cyber issue may occur. We sometimes face cyber issues that actually aren't even a cyber attack. You might call them a cyber mistake, but those cyber mistakes may have a small impact to the plant. They might shut a piece of equipment down for an hour or so. But to protect against the big cyber attacks, the people that are working with these systems need to be much more in-depth trained. They need to be taught where all the weak points actually are so that their behaviours can be modified. And that is quite different to your general office PC user. And you mentioned earlier about not just shutting down the plant, but the smaller things like shutting down parts of the supply chain. What kind of logistical issues can they cause? Oh, it's an absolute nightmare. I mean, let's start at the top of the tree. Let's start outside of the control system. Let's start at a customer's enterprise resource planning. We would normally call it SAP, the SAP system. Those SAP systems communicate with both suppliers and with customers to deal with with stock, to deal with orders. If those systems are down, you can't receive any orders. You can't purchase any stock. As you move down from the very top level of the the ERP, as you move down into the operation of the plant, stopping a control system means, as you say, raw materials that have not yet been processed. Sometimes they will store, sometimes they're on a ticking clock. If they're on a ticking clock, they may go out of spec, they may have to be thrown away. 
throwing anything away these days costs money, right? Even to, to get rid of milk, you have to biodigest it. You can't just stick it in the local ditch or the local stream. So your raw products suffer. Your production line, if it has stopped unexpectedly with a true stop, like an emergency stop, your actual heat and cooling cycles or your molding cycles, they get stopped in the middle of a middle of a process. And that means that that plant probably will suffer all sorts of knock on consequences from this stop. So as soon as you restart the plant, you have to go through extensive levels of cleaning. I've been on site years ago with with systems that added uh, hard palm kernel oil as a thickening agent. When the temperature dropped, you actually physically had to undo all the ends and you had to push it all out with drain cleaning rods. You know, so there's a significant amount of work to a stopped plant. On the other side of the plant, your, your product that's been made, again, that may go out of spec if it's not treated in a time. It won't make it onto delivery lorries. The supermarkets will fine manufacturers of products if they fail to deliver. So not only do they lose the money that they would have got from selling their product, they probably will also have to pay a fine to a supermarket. Supermarkets don't want to see empty shelves. There's all sorts of terms and conditions there. So the knock-on effects of a, an unexpected shutdown and the, the difficulty with cyber attacks is you cannot fix them quickly. The knock-on effect is catastrophic. It's millions of dollars before you've even really started calculating how you're going to fix it. And that's quite terrifying. And I guess it just, it's not just the internal stuff, as you mentioned, it's the supermarkets, it's things like shelf life. If you've got cheese on the dairy side of things, then it can't just be sitting around. And if your refrigeration units are down, then it's Absolutely. more food waste. I mean, I've, I've often said as a younger man joking that when you do modifications to a lot of plants that are using um, any type of perishable material, the specific one in dairy is cows don't cross their legs. A dairy has an obligation, both financially, contractually and probably morally, to farmers to take that milk away. Cows don't stop making milk just because nobody wants it on that day. And so there are all sorts of knock on effects and you're both going to impact in the case of dairy, you're going to impact the farmers and their families and their revenue and their income. You're going to impact the people that rely on the product that's made at the end of the day. Now, I'm sure all of us can manage a cup of coffee without milk in it. But if you think about baby food, if you think about elderly people or immunosuppressed people that need special food, a lot of these are fairly dairy based. Um, so the impact and the knock on is huge. It's also made worse if I just carry on. By the fact that we as a country, we've seen over the last 25 years that I've been in dairy, we've seen the smaller dairies all be swallowed up by the big dairies, which actually means that if a single dairy producer in the UK stopped all output, you'd probably kill, I don't know, 25 percent or 35 percent of the UK's total production in one go. You mentioned about a lot of companies would just pay this ransomware if they were not not suggesting that people should do that but if they were to do that how quickly would they be back online because it's not just a case of flipping a switch and you're back up running again and this is where it gets complicated so in the case as ransomware is a very good example there's been lots of lots of stuff in the press with that recently some of the ransomwares that i'm aware of people being hit by in 2021 
those ransomwares were three or four years old. They weren't new. They'd crept around the internet. They'd lay dormant on engineering programming terminals that, that some person had under their desk because they were set up to work with a slightly obsolete five or eight-year-old control system that a particular customer had. They just sat ticking away, biding their time. And then when they hit the plant, one of the first things they do is that when the, the ransomware hits, and there's some great videos on YouTube, say great, they're horrific, to be fair, of control rooms being hit. Screen after screen just flashes up with a big red backdrop and the words over the front. You've been hit by such and such ransomware. You need to contact us and then pay us and we'll tell you the code to unlock. Those people don't actually know where that ransomware is going to go. If that ransomware ends up on the laptop of Jonathan Reed and I lose my family holidays and some of my other little stuff that's not so important, I might pay £50 to unlock it. I might pay 100 But if I'm a global multinational that's got tens of billions of dollars of transactions, product, systems, customers, suppliers, all waiting on that system working, the ransomware would be a very different value. So these hackers don't know how much it's going to cost to unlock until they know who you are. They do a little bit of homework. That will take them a while. Then they'll come back to you and start negotiating. It's not a fixed fee. Once they've negotiated, and I, I dread to think how that even works, somebody has to pay money. Now, normally that's done via Bitcoin. Bitcoin is then tumbled to make it anonymous, and the, the ransomware people get paid. We hope they send you the unlock codes. I don't know how many times people have paid a ransom to not get an unlock code. I have read that some hackers are hacking other hackers. And when they get that diverted request for a payment, they then don't send the ransomware at all. So it's, it's dealing with absolute terrorists, in my opinion. Do they unlock the systems? I do believe in some of the larger profile ones we've seen in 2021, given the right code to unlock the encryption that the systems have been got up and running. Whether they run 100% or not, I don't know. I don't think anybody would want to tell us. There's all sorts of reputational damage happens. It's incredibly complicated. Unfortunately, I've never been at the front end of it. And I assume that if a company were to call you saying we've been hit by a cyber attack, there's not a lot they can do after the fact? Well, this is where preparation really helps. And I guess part of my value for me today is maybe I can help some people in the world prepare a little bit. Once a plant has been locked up and it's encrypted, encryption is very, very good. There is no way to unencrypt stuff without the right encryption key. Most customers that are in my space are technically adept. They have taken backups. They do have offline backups stored. But as we may remember from the very publicised biggest cyber attack that ever happened on the planet, there was 50,000 computers went down within a very short time window. And the safest way they decided to reinstate the computing systems was actually to destroy every hard drive of every machine just to make sure that even though the hard drives may have been formatted there was absolutely no chance anything got through so if a customer is hit by by a cyber attack the first thing you need to do is understand how far and how wide that would be because there'd be no point reinstating all the backups to be hit by the same cyber attack 20 minutes later and so to call me up and say 
we have a cyber attack and I have had customers call me in 2021 to say, we have had a cyber attack. How can you help today? I'm afraid my answer is not very good unless there is enough backups and enough preparation been made. With no backup, no preparation, there is no help. You could be at a point, let's be honest here, the PLC code, the controller code, will almost definitely be fine. There have been a very few cyber attacks at that level, and I'm not concerned about them. They're very unique. They were very specialist, probably state-sponsored. So the PLC layer, I'm not worried about. Instrumentation, the devices in the plant, again, I'm not worried about. It would be the operator workstations where they visualise the plant, the SCADA systems. It would be the databases. It would be uh, the reporting systems. These are all Windows-based computers, and that's where these cyber attacks happen. So unless there is effective backups being made of these Windows operating systems, there is very little we can do apart from start again. That could be many, many weeks, months away from being fixed. And you you already mentioned kind of where the threats come from and how traceable they are and clearly not very much. So obviously the most important thing is to protect yourself and, and what should companies do to set out on that path every day when we get in a car and we drive away we prepare ourselves we sit in a car we adjust the seats we do the seat belt we check that the mirror's at the right angle we probably put our lights on if it's dark we're used to doing that it's very different in a cyber world an it or, a, or an ot an operational technology world we haven't got the muscle memory yet we haven't got into the good habit of this preparation the cybersecurity standard, so there is a cybersecurity standard, it's called IEC 62443, which is a, a legitimate IEC standard and tries to guide us now down good cyber planning and good cyber strategy. And part of that standard tries to help us understand what we would do when we got hit, how we're going to manage those occurrences. At work, we do a fire drill, don't we, every X amount of months. And we're always told it's not a drill, but we always hope it is a drill. We don't really do that with cyber. That's something that SPX flow that we now have a process for. I have a chain of command. I have a team of engineers. I'm very lucky to manage. I have a team of leaders within SPX flow, and I know the right people to contact at the right time if there is a cyber attack. We for instance, we could bring a cyber security issue back from a customer site and we could issue that back to SPX Flow. So this is a two way journey. For me, preparation and planning really makes all of the difference. Understanding that you may be hit by a cyber attack and understanding that probably we can't protect against everything. We can't make ourselves completely cyber secure. We're permanently chasing a moving target. Just before Christmas, the Log4j vulnerability came out. That's significant to the control systems world. That is in our space. And so we have to kind of plan for these things when we don't know quite what that attack will look like. But we do know that we have backups that are on disparate systems to the ones that we're operating. We do know that we keep those backups regular and in date. We do know, for instance, with a facility, we do know that if you stop mid-production, 
you can't put the same data points back in the plant when you start it up several hours later. So we therefore have a plan about what we will do with the plant's production data. We will re-inject it into the system on a reboot, but we know where to inject the right signals at the right place. So by making these plans, you can take a cyber attack from being an absolute catastrophe. And I mean weeks of downtime, moving toward months to something maybe where you could limp along within 24 hours. And I think that really is key because I'm trying to help customers understand that cybersecurity is really important. But it's all about an analysis of what you have, plan about what you're going to do if you're attacked by some form of malware, and then making sure you've got the tools and the backups you need to do to reinstate that control system. We're currently in a global chip pandemic at the moment. Buying new computers can take weeks and weeks to be delivered. So why not, for instance, have a couple of cold standbys on a shelf in a cupboard out of use that are there available just to get the critical infrastructure back up and running? And and I guess if, if a company were to call you and say, OK, we want a, some cyber security, how do you assist them? I assume there's no real one size fits all. No, there's not, because every control system, every IT system and operational technology OT system, everyone is unique. They're probably all based on Windows. They're probably all based on a control layer for one of the big PLC providers around the world. It is very expensive to walk into a plant and say, right, you need to upgrade everything. Because when you upgrade the operating system, the software that's running on those computers probably needs a license upgrade to go with it. That might then mean you need a firmware upgrade to go in your control layer. That might need, mean you need some new updated cards. Basically, I have a rule of thumb, and that's for any significant control system, you're looking at a quarter of a million pounds minimum just to do all of the upgrades. Well, that's quite expensive, especially when you consider that doing all of those upgrades would give you more protection against malware, cybersecurity, but actually it won't give you more litres per hour or more tonnes per day of production. The plant will be the same. And so we have quite a holistic view of how we manage cybersecurity. We start with a, an installed base evaluation. We start by documenting what is in the control system, what is there, who made it, what age it is, whether it's repairable. It's quite handy, actually, because it also covers electronic failure. By documenting what's in the plant to start with, you create a baseline. By identifying what you can do to get to a safe place, you can then make some tailored and some valuable recommendations. So if you imagine a plant might have six operator computers, if one of them was at least up to date and protected even if the others weren't, that might mean in the case of a cyber incident, you could run the plant, albeit in limp home mode, but you could run that plant from one machine at that time. It might just give enough protection to make a cyber disaster a cyber inconvenience, really. And I think we have to be honest, it's a difficult time globally, economically. I think that making the very best of a worse situation is still better than doing nothing. And that's the value that I try and pass to our customers. Lots of manufacturers, they have IT people that look after the general IT of the entire company. Their model in IT is just to upgrade everything to the latest. Can't really do that in industry. So we need to be much more 
in tune with what the customer has and a much more holistic plan about what's reasonable, what's practicable. That's where we aim with our clients. And I guess it's one of those situations as well where it's an awful lot more economically viable to prevent something than it is to deal with it after it's happened. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult argument because I think until you've seen the impact firsthand, you don't really understand the risk. Is every single contractor and every single subcontractor of theirs subject to the same cybersecurity requirements that your own staff may be? Half the time, I see contractors that have turned up on site. They've come to do something really insignificant, like check the fire detection system in the offices. And the next thing I know is the guy's popped a laptop out that he said, oh, can I get on the Wi-Fi here? I need to update your, your fire alarm. And all of a sudden, we've got a stray computer on the same Wi-Fi network as half of the other computers in the building. Nobody says, well, What's your company's cybersecurity policy? And is your computer patched? Is it even running Windows 10 or 11? Has it been updated? Do you have any antivirus? They don't. They just give them a Wi-Fi login. The solution is to have a system that is up to date. The Windows patches are up to date. And have a team that knows how to install Windows patches. Have a system that's able to be robust enough to take that. Now, a big transition that SPX Flow has done in 2021, we have managed to develop a solution now where we build all of our automation solutions. So for a customer, the entire automation solution from virtualized controllers up to the SCADA and the database layers and even the communications out, we can virtualize and place within the cloud. So we've got a digital twin of the customer's plant. Now, what that means for us is every time there is a patch or an update, we're able to test that on the digital twin, which is nowhere near the customer's site. It's not attached to it. There's no data in it. But we can check that digital twin and simulated data to make sure the patch doesn't have a knock-on effect to the site. And if the patch does, we can roll back, work out where the problem was, and then reapply. So we know when we apply patches now to our systems that have been produced in the last 12 months we know we can test all of it offline the fear of lots of these operational technology systems is that the next patch you put in will close some ports within a firewall or they will shut down a communications interface because rather than failing open they failed safe and so patching can be quite a scary thing on a real life production plant so now because we can test it in the cloud on the digital twin we know what's going to happen. And I think that's a great big step forward because literally there's no excuse why people wouldn't be able to install their patches fear-free. A plant is only as profitable as the amount of hours it spends producing material. All of those other times, like waiting time and cleaning time, they're not profitable times. They're necessary evils that we have to go through. So keeping plants up and running is key. And because patching historically has caused unexpected shutdowns, rolling back has tripped up and caused all sorts of problems. You know, the, the customer base I have has been a little bit afraid of doing it, but hopefully moving forward with Digital Twin, we can really transit ourselves, we can pivot that piece of technology into something really valuable. My only advice to people is do get somebody, maybe SPX Flow, it may not be, do get somebody to do some install-based evaluations. Try and make some mitigating actions and try and prepare a plan 
for a cyber attack, because that plan for a cyber attack actually will be valuable if you have an unexpected piece of equipment failure, if an electronic component fails at random or a power supply in a server bursts into flames. And this really does happen occasionally. That information and that plan will also be valuable for that. So really, it's about getting those plans in place. All right, let's get to this week's look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from StoneX over in Dublin. Morning, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Bit of a continuation of the recent theme in the dairy markets again this week. Still a concern out there largely that milk collections are um, not picking up pace as much as people would uh, would want or, or the demand would require. So markets globally have continued to uh, move uh, higher on average uh, over the last week. Um, we did have a GDT auction just yesterday, which was quite strong, uh, up on average 4.6%. And this was quite considerably higher than we've seen in the last number of GDT auctions. But the futures markets on SGX had been pointing to a very strong increase, but they have also had a similar thing in advance of the last uh, several months worth of GDTs, and the GDT had been underperforming what the futures was pointing towards. So yesterday's auction was, uh, was strong and probably a little bit stronger than expectations, but actually when you look into the numbers, probably similar to where the, the futures markets had been pointing. You look across the product stream, we definitely notice particular strength in the powders, where skim milk powder was up 5% and whole milk powder was up 5.6%. And that's a similar theme to what we're seeing around the world. European skim milk powder continues to increase uh, over the last week and a similar situation in the US with the CME non-fat dry milk also increasing quite considerably uh, over the last week or so. So uh, continue to be a a, a strong demand out there for powders and a, a not enough supply coming on stream yet. Um, milk collections around the world still underperforming compared to where the market needs them to be. And uh, the demand continues to be robust. Uh, I mean, in Europe, we had late last week the November EU exports, which were stronger than expected, up on a milk equivalent basis about 1.7%. We were forecasting it to be down slightly. Um, so again, the demand out there appears to be quite strong. Perhaps the only exception to that is China, which still is lagging a little bit in terms of their demand. But that's not too surprising considered uh, how much they bought in advance of the, the free tariff window at the start of the year. In general, the team continues to be quite strong. There is some signs of some weakness on, on the fats market in Europe where the buyers are just very reluctant to pay the high prices and, and the market has been coming down a little bit in the last week. Besides that, uh, milk collections still need to improve before this market can really turn around and start going lower. Thanks, Charlie. We'll hopefully talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. Amazingly, next week's podcast is the last one for January 2022. I wonder if time is speeding up. Over the next seven days, I'm hoping to finally get rid of this cold, and hopefully getting a good walk-in again this weekend, as well as all of the other things that need doing around the house, sadly none of which involve being able to sit in front of the TV watching sport. Alright, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and maybe learned something new, 
I definitely did on the cybercrime front, and I'm going to go and back up all of my music and photos onto an external drive right now for a start. So, wherever in the world you may be, I hope you have a great week, stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.